Human existence is split into the material world and the spiritual world. The spiritual world is still heavily based in culture and geography. The gods and the stories fade as new ones take their place. And the stories of the spiritual world are nearly always based on humans or animals from the material world that have special powers. The study of the material world likewise evolves, but it's not nearly as culturally bound. Two plus two is the same everywhere. You take two rocks and add two rocks, and whether you're in China or Botswana or New Jersey, you still got four rocks. In fact, you can't really explain math in any language except the language of mathematics. Likewise, science is science, but the understanding of science evolves, and therefore it is totally safe to declare there is still much more to come in the future evolution of treating hypercalcemic diseases. We don't have it totally down, but by using science, we are indeed able to make a significant impact. In fact, we have a plethora of ways to treat hypercalcemia, but I'm just saying the arsenal will continue to expand. So this is a summary. It's not comprehensive, and it's how we deal with hypercalcemia in 2015. These podcasts can remain on the internet possibly forever, so if it's the year 2030 and you're listening to this, please only do so for historical significance. I will discuss various potential medication therapies in this lecture, but let's not forget the basics. Avoid or stop medications that will make the hypercalcemia worse, like thiazide diuretics, like lithium, and then maximize physical activity like weightlifting to minimize bone resorption. As discussed in the last episode, if there's a good indication for parathyroidectomy, refer the patient to a surgeon. For those with severe symptoms of hypercalcemia, hospitalize them. And what's one of the first things you're going to do in the hospital? Volume expansion. You're going to use saline at a rate of about 250 milliliters an hour. And you're going to try and get that urine output up to about 100 to 150 milliliters an hour. A lot of patients with hypercalcemia are very volume depleted because of the mechanisms that I already discussed in the hypercalcemia lecture that refer to clinical symptoms. With saline hydration, particularly at a fast rate, you could run into problems, obviously in those patients with congestive heart failure. And likewise, patients with late stage malignancy could be very edematous just to begin with. In those situations, you may want to use a loop diuretic like furosemide because it does help increase calcium excretion, though we probably should not be going to furosemide as a regular go-to drug for patients with hypercalcemia that don't have heart failure or kidney disease that requires diuresis or edematous states. And if you are going to use furosemide at all, which in most cases you don't need to, please make sure you hydrate the patient first. Now again, hypercalcemia ranges from mild, in which case you can deal with this on an outpatient basis, to severe where calcium levels are getting 14 or above and you're getting pretty symptomatic. And when we're dealing with those symptomatic patients in the hospital, we want to use drugs or therapies that have an onset of action that are pretty quick. So isotonic saline hydration, you're going to see results in a matter of hours. Loop diuretics, if you do use them, likewise, will start having results in a matter of hours. Dialysis, not used very often, but it can be used. 
particularly if you feel you cannot hydrate the patient safely. But if you can hydrate the patient, you then want to resort to a drug that will also have an onset of action in a matter of hours, and calcitonin is probably your first go-to choice. Giving calcitonin IM or sub-Q, don't use the nasal formulation in hypercalcemia, the subcutaneous and the intramuscular formulations do have a rapid onset of action. The problem is it loses efficacy quickly in about one to two days, tachyphylaxis, which is typically just fine because that's about how long it will take for another medication like a bisphosphonate to start working. Remember that tachyphylaxis is defined as a diminishing response to a drug after routine usage. But in calcitonin's case, that tachyphylaxis happens really quickly. So let's talk a little bit about bisphosphonates. There's a bunch of them out there. I'm going to talk about two IV formulations, which are pomidronate and zoledronic acid. The oral bisphosphonates should not be used for treating hypercalcemia. The bisphosphonates have been used for all kinds of hypercalcemia, including hypercalcemia of malignancy, and they help turn off the osteoclasts, which then inhibits calcium release by inhibiting bone resorption. I was trained using pomidronate, but probably should be switching my practice to be using zoledronic acid because there have now been two studies showing that it is superior to pomidronate in the treatment of hypercalcemia of malignancy. Anybody who wants to review those two studies, there was a pooled analysis done and it was printed in the Journal of Clinical Oncology in 2001. And by the way, just to make it more confusing, zoledronic acid has two brand names. One is Reclast and the other is Zometa. By now, I think we've all heard about osteonecrosis of the jaw, but one of the patient populations that happens in is multiple myeloma and metastatic bone disease patients. So repetitive use of bisphosphonates can have its problems. But for somebody presenting with acute hypercalcemia, I would go ahead and give the IV bisphosphonate and worry about repetitive use later on down the line. Another problem with bisphosphonates is the greater the dose you use, the greater the risk of renal toxicity. But at the same time, the higher the dose of bisphosphonate that you use, the more responsive the calcium will be, meaning the higher the dose, the more calcium will drop. Sometimes the patients become refractory to bisphosphonates like zoledronic acid, and in that case, there is a new drug called denosumab, and this is a monoclonal antibody. Denosumab goes by brand names such as Prolia and Exgeva, and it can be used for just preventing fractures in certain populations of cancer patients, but I'm talking about it strictly for the use of hypercalcemia. And the way denosumab works as a monoclonal antibody is it targets a protein that controls the activity of osteoclasts. So this stops the osteoclasts and therefore stops bone cells from being broken down. And while denosumab has its problems, particularly price, 
one of the things that is good about it is that it's not cleared by the kidney, and therefore you can use it in patients with renal disease. Now, bisphosphonates, they usually take about 24 to 72 hours to work, and the duration of action for the IV bisphosphonates is up to about a month. But denosumab usually takes about 4 to 10 days to work, but once it starts working, the duration of action is about 4 to 15 weeks, so anywhere from about 1 month to 3 or 4 months. Let's switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about Sinicalcet, which is a calcimimetic. This drug activates the parathyroid gland, and what it activates particularly in the parathyroid gland is the calcium-sensing receptor, and therefore it decreases PTH secretion. It's a calcium-sensing receptor agonist. You will see it frequently used in secondary hyperparathyroidism in the chronic kidney disease population. But in a non-surgical patient with primary hyperparathyroidism, it's something you can consider. I don't think it has FDA approval this time for it, but some people are using it. There have been a few small trials using Sinicalcet, and they show that it indeed does lower both serum calcium, and PTH for most patients, but it doesn't appear to improve bone mineral density. And it does have commonly experienced side effects like nausea, diarrhea, arthralgias, myalgias, and paresthesias. So for a lot of patients, it's no picnic. It is worth noting that in the EVOLVE trial that was published in the December 27, 2012 New England Journal of Medicine that Sinicalcet did not reduce major cardiovascular events or death in dialysis patients receiving it for secondary hyperparathyroidism. So it is approved for treating hypercalcemia for both secondary hyperparathyroidism and for parathyroid cancer. It's not approved for primary hyperparathyroidism, though there are physicians that are using it for that reason. When using Sinicalcet for whatever reason, Check calcium levels regularly to make sure you are not over-treating to the point of causing hypocalcemia. And since I mentioned primary hyperparathyroidism, I guess I should say that on some very rare occasions, some doctors are using oral phosphate for primary hyperparathyroidism. It is not tolerated by the GI tract well, but it will lower calcium by about a point. Oral phosphate will decrease intestinal absorption of calcium and decrease vitamin D levels. I've never seen it used for that reason. I've obviously used phosphate for other reasons, but not for primary hyperparathyroidism. And in addition to the GI side effects, phosphate might increase soft tissue calcifications. So know it exists if you are desperate for an option but it's definitely not a go-to first option. And please do not confuse oral phosphate therapy with bisphosphonate therapy. I do want to briefly mention the use of estrogen in postmenopausal women. Estrogen progesterone therapy can help in primary hyperparathyroidism to lower calcium levels by about 0.5 to 1 point lower. But as we know, Hormone replacement therapy potentially has breast cancer and cardiovascular risks, 
and the dosage of estrogen that tend to help lower calcium are typically higher than the doses we would use for typical hormone replacement therapy. Let me also mention glucocorticoids. Glucocorticoids like prednisone will decrease GI absorption of calcium, not a great long-term option for most people as they have several terrible side effects, but in sarcoidosis, they do have utility. The other place they have utility is in hypercalcemia from lymphoma. So another thing that glucocorticoids do is they decrease vitamin D production by activated mononuclear cells in patients with a granulomatous disease like sarcoidosis or lymphoma. There are other drugs for hypercalcemia that I didn't get to. So again, as I warned you, this isn't a totally comprehensive overview. So if you're interested in learning about things like gallium nitrate for hypercalcemia, have at it with the multiple other resources out there. But that will do it for me. So I will catch you on the next round. You've been listening to Dr. Gil Parat with the Hospital and Internal Medicine Podcast.